I noticed that one of the words in the hymn that we were singing uh, was uh, describing the word of God was balm for every care. So that's my hope for today, that uh, we'll find the scripture of balm. For those who are not familiar, balm, I think, used to be uh, like some sort of a medicine you would put on a, on a part of you that was hurting, and that would make you feel better. Not that uh, messages from the word of God are designed to just make us feel better, but it's nice if they do. We want uh, to hear the word of God and what it has to say to us. If you were to come to my house for dinner, and I hope you all have the opportunity to, um, and the phone would happen to ring, you would notice we have a strange ritual. Uh, one or sometimes more than one of the kids will race to the phone, but they won't pick up the phone. They will do what most of us do when the phone rings, and that is they will check to see who the call is from. That's one of these new technology thing we have. <laughs> you don't have to answer the phone. You can check who it's from first. Now, maybe we don't like that because it means people can screen us and decide if they want to talk to us, too. But usually, it's to prevent what we call you know, these anonymous callers, meaning people we don't know, that usually want something from us. You know, they're promising a vacation in the Bahamas, but there's probably something else that they're really after. And uh, so we, we have opportunity to dec decline the call. And uh, that will be what we're thinking about today as we think about the word of God is uh, what's the source, right? Who, who's the caller? Who is the message from? Um, with that, uh, let me talk a little bit about the book we'll be studying next. As most of you know, we've been uh, heading through uh, Timothy and then 2 Timothy and uh, now we're going to start the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And somebody might wonder, well, what, what does the book of Hebrews have to do with, with Timothy? Well, you'll be surprised. Well, go ahead and we'll look at the last couple of verses in the book of Hebrews, and you'll find it's connected to Timothy after all. Something I didn't realize until I studied the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, so if you have, uh, can get our first verses up, uh, Timothy Sorry, Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 13 and verses, verse 22. There you go. We're, we're alive. Uh, he says, uh, the, the author is saying, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words, Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. There you go. Timothy is in the book of Hebrews. After all, now, uh, as, as best as we can tell, and, and this is, we can't tell a whole lot about the author for the book of Hebrews. One of the famous things about the book of Hebrews is we don't know who wrote it. Right? Every other epistle in the New Testament is labeled. The person who wrote it says, you know, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi or wherever, and you know who's the author. In this case, we don't actually know who the author is. One of the few things we know about him is that he knew Timothy, he was uh, probably in jail together with Timothy, or at least at the same time Timothy was in jail, according to this. He's saying that, that Timothy uh, was released, has been set free. He knows about it, and he's going to come to wherever this letter was written to uh, with Timothy, hopefully, if, if Timothy can be timely about his exit out of jail. Um, the other things we know about this author 
is that uh, he is mighty in the scriptures. If you, if you were to read the, the book of Hebrews, the first thing you'll notice is it's full of quotations from and references to the Old Testament. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was an expert in the Old Testament. He, he'll he'll uh, dig out what would seem to us the most obscure verses and, and completely open them up to us and show us how those verses talk about the Lord Jesus and, in fact, say very important things about the Lord Jesus. So this guy really knew his Old Testament. Um, the other thing that I already alluded to that's, not, that's kind of unusual about this book is we don't know who it was actually written to. Uh, the title says, To the Hebrews, was probably added by somebody else. That's probably not the author's own writing. But the reason we, they say it is because it keeps talking about the Old Testament. Now, if you keep talking about the Old Testament to people who are not familiar with the Old Testament, it's not going to be so relevant. They're not going to be interested. And the author would be wasting his words. But uh, if it's written to Jewish people, then bringing up the Old Testament and explaining things out of the Old Testament makes a lot of sense. Right? They're familiar with it. They give it a lot of credibility. And if you can show us something out of the Old Testament, we will believe it, right, if you're from that background. Um, okay, so those uh, are a couple of special things about uh, this book. Now, what do we know about the people who this book is written for? And uh, we could find out a little bit about them in, again, near the end of the book, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 32 says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence which has a great reward. So a number of things we can tell about uh, the uh, audience he's writing it to. Uh, for one thing, they, they're, they're believers. Right? They were illuminated. They previously had the scripture explained to them. They understood the word of God, the message uh, of the gospel, and as a result uh, are now believers in the Lord Jesus. They went through some period of persecution. He says you endured a great struggle with suffering. So they've had to endure persecution. I'm guessing, and, and this is somewhat you know, debated, we don't know everything about every epistle. We don't know for sure when this one was written, but it's very likely, it seems to me, that the persecution he's referring to is probably associated with the same persecution that got Paul in prison. Right? Paul was jailed. In 2 in Timothy, we see he's, he's now the, near the end of his life. He's encouraging Timothy to hold on fast to the word of God through this period of persecution. And it's likely that this is the time in which they're also going through, they have just gone through. We see the uh, author is about to be released from prison, most likely. So this was, I'm sorry, I keep uh, jumping around. Uh, heard of Nero, anybody here heard of Nero, the Roman emperor? He was probably the guy behind this persecution. He burned a good portion of the city of Rome. And when he found that made him unpopular, he blamed the Christians for the fire. And that, and justified by that, a great persecution against the Christians. That's uh, probably the reason Paul ended up uh, being executed. And this guy and Timothy were probably rounded up at the later phase of this 
time of persecution. And as a result, they actually survived because Nero died. He reached the end of his life. And then the persecution come down. And there'll be some time of rest for the believers from persecution. But uh, the people to which Hebrews were written were probably really shaken in their faith during this period of time. Right? Persecution will do this to us. We, 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 we say we believe in Jesus, but when hard times are coming and you're being dragged to prison and you're being put to death and your friends are being put in prison and they're being put to death, you start, do I really believe? Right? How much do I believe? And so their faith was really shaken. And this book is being written to encourage them. Right? He refers to the fact that when it started, when the persecution first came, he says that, that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So here, here they are. The soldiers are coming in. They're taking away their, their goods. Imagine people coming into your home and starting to take up your TV, your computer. All your stuff now belongs to the state. We just confiscated it because you, you believe in Jesus. And it says here that they accepted it joyfully, right? I mean, that's a great faith as far as I'm concerned. Why? It says, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. They said, fine, you can have it all. I'm going to heaven, all right? This is a better place. And uh, we were, you know, worshiping the Lord for that this morning. I don't see Angelo, but uh, he shared that with us this morning. Really, we're all looking forward to being with the Lord in heaven. And the fact that they were able to rejoice even in the midst of this persecution shows they had a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus that persevered through it. But as the years rolled on, it probably was a period of several years of persecution, it seems like their confidence is now beginning to fail. And uh, that's why he says, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. He's trying to encourage them. This is a letter written to really encourage them as they now have gone through this persecution and there seems to have been some slipping away, drifting away from the truth. He wants to encourage them once again. We could perhaps pick, uh, and I'll finish the introduction with this, uh, verse uh, Hebrews 12.1. I'm sorry, I think I'm missing something here. Okay, I think, yeah, Hebrews 12.1. We could perhaps take it as a theme verse for the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's a verse many people memorize. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the Christian race, right? He wants us, the author wants us to run it with endurance, right? We've, we've, we've uh, slacked off, if you would, in our Christian life. We've been discouraged, and the author wants us to get up Lay aside every weight, the sin that so easily ensnares us, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And he brings many witnesses into us. It says, therefore, since we have um, so great a cloud of witnesses, and it's going to be the Old Testament. He's going to bring the Old Testament into bear on this and show really how many reasons we have from the Old Testament to hold on to this truth that God has given us that uh, as we were worshiping him for this morning, uh, he, uh, he is preparing a place in heaven for us, right? We, we can hold on to God's promises and run the Christian race because there's lots of witnesses, there's lots, lots of evidence to assure us and give us confidence in this race that we are running. That's the purpose. Okay, 
With that, let's turn to Hebrews, and we'll just look at the first three verses today. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, I'll start reading just the first one and a half verses. Read the next one and a half uh, when we're going to talk about them. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So this is the reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had prophets, right? God would speak to the people of Israel through prophets. So they were somewhat used to that. And I don't know if any of you ever, uh, you know, read a book and you wished you were in it. You know, I, I used to do it, especially with like fantasy books. You know, you have all this, you know, fighting going on or whatever cool stuff happening. And you almost wish you were in the midst of it, right? And um, got to participate in what was going on. Well, for the Jews, the Old Testament can be like that. They would read the Old Testament and uh, Gideon, you know, rising up and uh, breaking the vessels and saying, uh, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And everybody's doing that. And, you know, the, the multitude of the enemies of Israel flee away. And, and they wish that they were part of that, you know, Old Testament time when God was sending his revelation through his prophets. And, uh, and they were, you know, we wish we were there. We would have believed the prophet and we would have done what the prophet the prophets wanted us to, and we would have conquered the land and held on to the land. And what, what the reader is doing is bringing them back to it and is saying, you know what? You can still be part of that story because God has a message for us as well today. And when he's saying that, he's referring to the message of the gospel that came through the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was a prophet. Now, we know he was more than just a prophet. But he was a prophet. He brought the message of God to God's people. And just like the prophet, the people of old could believe the message of the prophets to them and rise to great victories for God, we can do the same today. We can believe the message that God has for us today and live by faith, right? The Christian race is a victory that's being fought for God by believing the promises that he has given to us. And that's what the author is bringing them to. Now, having said that, he will show, uh, if you would, the superiority, if you would, of the prophecy we have today or the message that we have today compared to theirs. Now, in doing it, he's in no way discrediting the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament as a launching pad. We believe the Old Testament. We believe the prophets. Here we have a message made even more sure then what the prophets of old have given, we have the ability of living a life even more by faith, if you would, than the life that was lived by people in the Old Testament. Because we have an even greater message. And the way he'll show it's a greater message in, uh, in today's message is by pointing out to who that messenger is. Um, but first, a couple of other uh, notables. Um, the message of the Old Testament was, in a sense, limited. It was for a particular group of people. Not everybody can look at the Old Testament and say, what God is saying is for me. Right? It was limited in scope. It was given to the fathers, a particular group of people in a particular period of time. Um, it was uh, the message of the gospel is for us today. It's for everybody. That's why Jesus could tell 
his disciples that, uh, you know, go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel to every creature, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? It's a message that encompasses all of humanity right now. So if you're you know, breathing and alive today, this message is for you. And, uh, and, and, and will, will uh, remain for all time until the end of the age. So as long as the age in which we live, uh, which will end when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth, as long as that, that age is going on, this message is still good. Okay, it's for you. It's for today. Uh, but the, the biggest distinction really is the fact that this is by his son, right? So he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, if I said, I'm, I'm going to be bringing somebody here and he has an important mes message to share with the rest of you, you will say, all right, okay, well, uh, we'll try to be polite and listen to what he has to say. But if I told you, well, you know, it happen, happens to be that this person who has this really important message is President Obama. And I, I step away, and here comes President Obama, and he has a message to share with you guys. Well, you'll really listen, right? It's got to be a really important message to bring Obama out of Washington, D.C., to this church to speak to you guys. Right? I mean, he's not just going to show up to say, good morning, I'm glad you're all here, you know. That would be a nice thing to say, but he's not going to come the whole way just to give you a message like that. In a similar way, the fact that God sent his son into the world to deliver a message tells us something about this message. It's important, right? I mean, God is not going to send his son from heaven to say, glad you could all be here this morning, right? It'll take something very special to bring him out. And so a message that comes from him, we need to you know, to pay special attention to. That's the kind of, you know, message you can trust in and believe in because it comes from him. Now, just, just to uh, clarify, you know, I know that often there's a confusion as what does it mean when, when we say the word son, refer to Jesus as son. We mean the son of God. What does the son of God mean? There's a, a passage in John that kind of clarifies that to, to any who's confused about the subject. John 5, uh, 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus just healed somebody on the Sabbath, miraculously, and uh, the, the Jews, or religious leaders at least, felt Jesus just broke the command of keeping the Sabbath, and as a result he should be put to death for it. Now, he didn't really break a real commandment that God has, but it was their interpretation of it. But listen to what Jesus says. But Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So when we say Jesus is the son of God, we're saying he is equal to God. Okay, there is no distinction there. Now, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not confusing those three persons, but the title God applies equally to all three persons in the Godhead. Okay. 
So that's the message. That's who the message is from. And then we have for us, in the rest of the passage, uh, what I would call uh, an introduction to the Lord Jesus. Now, if somebody was to come and share a message, and we'll say it's not President Obama this time, you know, I will introduce him, and I'll say certain things about him, like, you know, this person graduated from Berkeley with highest honors. Uh, he, uh, he has two startups in Silicon Valley. He made a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, I'll say some things about him. Why will I say all of that about the speaker? Well, it's to get you to listen to what he's about to say, right? right? As we speak about someone's credentials, uh, as we introduce someone who's about to speak, the credentials we give, we'll, we give to him are designed to help the audience pay attention to what he's saying. I want to listen to somebody like that. I like to listen to someone you know, who, who, who made a billion dollars. He might know something I don't know. Because it's, it's so much exceptional to be making that much money. Now, we have uh, here seven unique credentials that the Lord Jesus has. Right? As, as the author is, is, is talking about the message we have received from God through the Lord Jesus, he wants us to realize how trustworthy that message is, that promise is, by having us think about really the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus and him being the one through whom God brought this message. So seven unique qualities of the Lord Jesus that assure us or give us strong reason to trust in what he says. Okay, the first one, it says, uh, let me read the passage. So Hebrews 1, uh, starting halfway through verse 2, it says, Whom? He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Seven qualities, unique qualities of the Lord Jesus. The first one, whom he has appointed heir over all things. What is an heir? An heir is somebody who is about to come into some inheritance. So my parents don't have a lot of possessions to their names. They do own a house or part of a house. I don't know what fraction they own, what fraction the bank owns. If they wanted to, they could leave some of that house to me when they passed away. And that would be the extent, extension of my heritage. Not very big. Um, some people inherit a lot more, right? If you're uh, the son of, uh, you know, Bill Gates, you stand to inherit more than a fraction of a house. You'll probably inherit several houses and a lot of money with it. Now, what does it give you being an heir of something? Well, it means that you, you have, uh, you're the person to whom it ultimately belongs. You may have not come into the good of it yet, but it really does belong to you. I used to work for a company that was sold to another company, and one day the owner of the new company came by and he addressed us, his employees, and I paid close attention to what he was saying. Why? Well, because he owned the company. He could do with it whatever he wanted to. He could have said, you know what, I decided today we're going to close the company. You know, I'm sorry. You know, you can all go look for another job. Could he say that? He could say it. It's his company. It belongs to him. He could have said, you know, I've, I've decided I'll just double all of your 
you know, incomes. You know, from now on, you'll all be making twice as much. Could he have said that? He could have. Right? It's his company. He can do with it whatever he wants. In the same way, the Lord Jesus owns this universe. It belongs to him. Can he make the rules? He can make the rules. Right? Whatever he says goes because it's his universe. And so we can listen. We can trust whatever he says. Right? He has the power and authority to say it. So when he's promising us heaven, right, he says, if you put my faith in me, you know, I am preparing a place in heaven for you, we can take that at face value because he owns this universe. He can do that. He can take us to heaven. Right? Whatever he says goes. Second, it says that through whom also he made the world. That is, God made the world through Jesus. Now, in my company, we make LEDs. And there's many aspects to making an LED. You have to, to uh, lay a special kind of layer that is where the, the light actually gets generated. And then you need to have a, a diode that passes the electricity through that layer in order to, to bring the en energy source that becomes the light. And uh, then you need some, some phosphors on top of it that converts the light into white light, which most of us want to have white light. And then there's going to be a package that's going to go inside. Um, and uh, so whenever we design a new LED in my company, we have these different members that have different expertise. No single person understands all the stuff that goes into an LED, right? We're just that limited. Uh, and so you have to take other people's word for it. If I want to know something about the phosphors, I'll go to the person who's that's their expertise, and I'll ask him, can you explain how this works, or what do you think is happening to our LED from your perspective and understanding of it? I'm not going to try to understand everything about phosphors because I'm just limited. I can't do it all. Right? I have to accept other people for what they know. Well, this tells us that Jesus is an expert of this universe. Right? He is the one who created it. He knows how it ticks. Right? Now, the word here, he made the world, doesn't just speak of, of, uh, of space or planets. It also speaks of time. The word is eons. He made the ages. So he didn't just create the earth. He created this particular age, this particular dispensation in which we live in, the time. He knows under what rule it operates. If he says, whoever believes the gospel will have eternal life, he knows the rule. He knows how this universe works. You can take him at his word, right? This is, we can't, you know, we shouldn't say something like, well, you know, that doesn't sound right to me. What do you know, right? Trust the one who made this universe to tell you how this universe functions. And the fact that by simply believing a message that God has given, you can go to heaven. In fact, you're assured to go to heaven by simply believing that message. Because he knows. Third, unique, and these are all unique about Jesus. You're not going to find anybody else like this. Third unique thing about him, uh, it says, who being the brightness of his glory. Meaning, he is the one who reveals the glory of God. Right? There's nobody else who can do it other than Jesus. Only Jesus can really reveal the glory of God. Now, there's something interesting about the phraseology here, or grammar. I'm not an expert in English. But uh, if, I, if I'm understanding the English correctly, verse 3 reads, who being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. So those three phrases are qualifying the fourth phrase, right? If, if, if my English grammar is correct. So when it says that he is the one who's revealing God's glory, being the brightness of his glory, it speaks particularly of that action of purging away our sins. Now, Jesus generally reveals the glory of God, but in no single event did he reveal the glory of God as uh, powerfully as he did at the cross. Now, what is the glory of God? It's his glorious attributes. It's the way God is that makes him so wonderful, right? That's the glory of God. Well, how did Jesus reveal that on the cross? Um, I, have, I have a couple of verses here. The first one, in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here we have the glory of God revealed. One of his glorious attributes is his love. God is love. That's the way God is. Now, his love was revealed through the Lord Jesus when Jesus died for us on the cross. Right? He loved us. God so loved the world and put there your name. Noad, John Clearfield, Matt Clark. God so loved these people in the world that he sent his only begotten son. Can you imagine? I have, I have a son. I'm not giving him for anybody. I'm not. Right? Well, God took his son and he gave him up for you and for me. Right? It revealed the love of God. It shows what God is like. We wouldn't have known what God was like unless he chose to reveal himself. And he chose to reveal himself through his son and principally through his son dying on the cross. There is love. We never knew love and what love is like until we looked at the Lord Jesus dying for us on the cross. Now we see love and the love of God. Another attribute of God that was revealed on the cross is his grace. It says in verse, in Romans 3:24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word grace means something that we didn't earn. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't earn my salvation. I didn't do anything to deserve it, right? God gave it to me, according to this verse, freely, by his grace, right? Now, it's not that it was free. It was purchased at an infinite price. But the Lord Jesus paid that price. I did not have to pay it. That shows the grace of God. Now, God was always gracious, but that was manifested on the cross. When I see that Jesus paid the cost for me to have a mansion in heaven, and I didn't have to pay anything for it, I see grace, right? That's the grace of God revealed by the Lord Jesus on the cross. 
And the last item I was going to bring up here is later on in the same section, verse 25, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Another thing we learn about God through the cross is that he is righteous. Now, if God would have said, no, I'd, I know you did a lot of things that are not right, but let's just forget about them, and I'll, I'll let you stay with me in heaven. All right, well, that would be loving. That would be gracious. It wouldn't be righteous. It wouldn't be just. I don't deserve to be there. Right? But by God taking all of my sins, placing them on the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus paying the penalty for the sins, God can be righteous. Right? I can go to heaven with God preserving his righteousness. Right? It's revealed by Christ on the cross that God is righteous. He would not omit a single sin from being paid for. That is how righteous God is, even if he has to do it in the body of his son, because God is righteous. Okay. So that was three. Number four, again, unique things about the Lord Jesus that uh, we're not going to find in anybody else. It says he is the express image of his person. Jesus is the express image of the person of God. This is something Jesus says that, uh, if I can use this slang term, will knock your socks off. But uh, it did mine. John 14, 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So this is just after uh, this whole thing. Jesus just told his, his disciples he's about to depart. Right? I'm going away. You can't follow me right now. He's, he's heading to the cross. And they don't understand, and they're wrestling with it. And, uh, and then Philip is trying to help out the situation and says, you know what, Jesus? Just show us the Father. Just give us a glimpse, a true glimpse of God, and that'll be enough. Right? We'll be satisfied. We'll stop bothering you. And uh, this is what Jesus answers. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, you're looking at me, you're looking at God. You're not going to see any more God than me. Right. Only Jesus can say that. Right? You're not going to find a prophet in the Old Testament saying that. Okay. Number five, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is the story I thought about when I uh, was thinking about this passage, Daniel chapter five. Uh, you probably are familiar with the story. Uh, Belshazzar, who was the son or grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar was the... Uh, Babylonian king who uh, basically destroyed Jerusalem, took all the, the wealth of Jerusalem, took the, all the good people in Jerusalem, and he brought them to Babylon. Daniel was one of those. And uh, Belshazzar was his grandson, and he's having a party, and he's saying, bring out all the vessels from the temple. We're going to be drinking tonight from the goblets of gold that came from the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
And then fingers show up and they write, Mene, Mene, Takel, Ufrazim, which uh, literally means, you know, right? Uh, but he doesn't know what it means. It's in Hebrew. He can't understand the message. And so he calls Daniel. And uh, this is what Daniel says to him. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, meaning you, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. You knew what God did with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's referring to another story in Nebuchadnezzar's life. You knew all this, but you haven't humbled your heart. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and, the, and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your way, you have not glorified. So Daniel was telling him, you know what? God is the one who's holding your breath right now. Is the God you're blaspheming with what you're doing. And uh, when we think about this verse, that Jesus was upholding all things by the word of his power, this is the same guy that was holding the breath of Belshazzar in his hand, right? Meaning, Belshazzar's every breath depended upon him. The moment God loses it, he's going to stop breathing, right? We often recognize that God created this universe. But we don't often recognize that he is holding this universe together by his will, including your life and my life. Right? We would not take another breath unless God allows us to. And, uh, but the amazing thing is you think about the context here. Well, when is all this happening? It says, when he had by himself purged our sins. There is Jesus on the cross, hanging with nails in his hands, being tortured, being ridiculed, being spat upon. What is he doing? He is holding the life of the people who are doing it to him. While they were killing him, he was keeping them alive. Number six. When he had by himself purged our sins... I came to this church about 20 years ago, possibly to the day. I think it was some, sometime in May or June that I came for the first time. And, uh, you know, you were a group of nice people. Some of you that were here at the time, not all of you were here at the time. Those of you who were here at the time were nice people. That hasn't changed, by the way. You guys are still are nice people. But... Uh, Rick uh, invited me over to his house. Everybody here, or most people here, I think, know Rick Bellis. Invited me to his house and talked to me a little bit, tried to fill me out. You know, where is this person in his quest of God? Right? Rick always was trying to discern where people were in seeking after God or other God uh, working in their lives. And he offered to meet with me and, and go through some of the uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. And I said, okay, you know, sounds good to me. I'm a Jew ought to be willing to listen to someone expounding from the Old Testament. And so he showed me some prophecies about, uh, from Isaiah and Daniel that really pointed out to the Lord Jesus as being the Messiah. And, uh, 
and you know, that was all good and, and well. And uh, I think that week or the following week, the Lord kind of opened my eyes to the fact that God was real. Right? Up to that point, I was an atheist or an agnostic. And now I became a believer. And I said, you know, I believe God is real, and I believe the Bible does point to Jesus, so Jesus must be the Messiah. And uh, so I told Rick the next time I saw him, you know, I, I'm in. You know, I, I believe. I'm a Christian. And Rick said, oh, praise the Lord. Let's meet again. And, uh, you know, we meet again, and he starts talking about sin and, you know, Jesus saving us from our sins and all of that. And I wasn't really comfortable. He was talking about an area in which I had no experience. I didn't know what he was talking about when he was talking about Jesus saving us from our sins. And I told him that. I'm not comfortable without you talking about sin. And, you know, Rick takes, you know, take that. Whoa, you know, this guy says he's a Christian, but he doesn't understand what Jesus did with his sins. And uh, that's where most people are, right, in the world. People, the reason more people are not coming to Jesus to be saved is they don't understand about sin, right? When you think about really all religions out there, they will tell you, you want to go to heaven, you need to do some good things. And hopefully your good things will outweigh your bad things. And, you know, somehow you'll make your way to heaven, or at least we think there's a 75% chance you will. Right? I mean, that's what all world religions are. Right? There's some amount of good works. There's something you need to do. And if you do it, and do enough of those good things, they'll somehow make up for your bad things. And as a result, you'll go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a single sin sunk all of humanity into destruction. Adam and Eve, eating of that fruit was enough to condemn the rest of us to hell, is what the Bible teaches. Now, on top of it, we all sin habitually all the time. Right? We have, there's no way any of us will make it to heaven unless something is done about our sin problem. And Jesus is the only one who made an offer to take care of our sins. I know of no one else that made an offer to do something about my sin except the Lord Jesus. And uh, that is why in uh, Acts 4.12, the uh, disciples could answer the Jewish leadership who told them not to preach Jesus. And they said, uh, you know, they had to preach him. And nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through the cross and what Jesus did on the cross for us. All right, the last one we have, last unique uh, unique quality of the Lord Jesus is uh, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's talking about heaven, sitting on the right hand of God. Now, if you know much about heaven, you know that everybody in heaven is busy in doing one thing, and that is worshiping God. Right? They're on their knees before the throne, worshiping God. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. He is the only one. He is not worshiping God. He is being worshipped as God. Only Jesus. Okay. Um, let's just make an application out of it. 
Okay, Jesus said he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And that whoever puts his faith in him will go to heaven. That is Jesus' promise to all of us. Now, most of the people in Hebrews have heard that promise and have believed that promise, but their faith was floundering, right, with all the persecutions they were enduring. And uh, what the author is doing here is, you know, did you check who was on the, you know, phone ID? <laughs> when you got the message, who was the person talking? Well, it's God. Can we get that picture up? Yeah. <laughs> it's God. Right? This message is from God. You can believe this message because of who it came from. Right? Check your caller ID. <laughs> it's God that made us this promise. We can take it to the bank. Now, if you haven't yet received the call, so the phone is ringing, right? And you have a choice of whether to pick it up or not. I remember <coughs> John Rosendahl, most of you here know John Rosendahl, telling me once of how he came to court Kirsten, how they got together. And uh, he, he became interested in her, as most young men become interested in young women. And uh, he went to her elder, who was Jean Gibson, said, can I court Kirsten? And uh, Jean Gibson said something like, yes, she's my number one girl. But this is how you're going to do it. You are going to go to her. You're going to bear your heart to her. You're going to tell her you know, how much you love her or, or whatever it is in your heart that you have toward her and where you intend this relationship to go. All of that before she says yes or no. And uh, it's so different from the way things are done today, right? I mean, people kind of feel their way in. Do you like me before I'll tell you I like you? You know, we play this game. Sometimes trying to get something out of the person. You don't even like them or you don't love them, but you want to get something out of them, so you'll play this game, right, with them. God is so different. He communicated to us first. And I'm thinking of how Jesus, it says Jesus sat down. Jesus, Jesus has come to this world and he laid it all on the line. He told you how much he loved you. He loved you enough that he did this and he let somebody nail him to the cross. And he told you what his plan for you is. He wants you with him in heaven forever because that is how much he loves you. And he still leaves the choice up to you. Are you going to receive the call? Or are you going to deny him? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh, he loved us so much, Lord. We, we can't imagine why the more we look into ourselves, the more we see our own depravity, the less we see what it is that you saw in us. And yet we see Jesus hanging on a cross. And we know that when he did that, he said, I love you. If there's anybody here, Lord, who has somehow come short of putting their faith in you, accepting you at your word, your promise to take them to heaven, to be with you for eternity, Lord, we pray for your work in their hearts and bringing them to yourself. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.